We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, and I want to read from verses 12 through 16. Hebrews chapter 13, and if you didn't bring a Bible uh, with you, then we'll have uh, the verses up on the screen. I want to read the verses, and I want to explain kind of why um, God put these verses on my heart, and we'll kind of unpack them together. So Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 12. The writer to Hebrews writes this, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Today, across all of our uh, different locations, uh, we're kind of all preaching. Location pastors uh, are preaching uh, along the same theme. And uh, so at each one of our locations, the location pastor is preaching just to the people in the room. There's nobody tuning in online. In fact, we pre-recorded a special message just for folks that are watching online. There are some people, a lot of people, that are not yet comfortable gathering together in person. Uh, there are some people who are, it's not wise for them to gather in person yet because of different health challenges or they're connected to people who have different health challenges. But then there's another group of people who have been out of church for over a year. And I'll be honest with you, I was kind of one of those, like I was at Tyson sometimes, definitely when I was preaching, but it felt good, y'all, to just sit on the couch on Sunday and not really have to do anything and to be able to just kind of participate virtually. And so there's a whole group of people where honestly have just settled into a rhythm of just doing, you know, bedside Baptist. You know what I mean? Just church online, um, uh, which honestly just doesn't require a whole lot. And we're so thankful that God has blessed us with the technology and the team to be able to, to provide that access for people, especially people who are exploring Christianity and have questions. But we recorded, pre-recorded a special message to that online crowd to say, if you are able, if you are comfortable, if it makes sense for, for you and your family's kind of health and medical situation, we want to encourage you as soon as possible here or wherever you're watching from to reconnect physically in person with a local church. Now, for the people who are physically gathered, which is you, all of us location pastors are preaching from this theme of all, all hands on deck. And the reason for that is because we are now beginning to transition out of this crazy season that we've been in where we haven't been able uh, to be together. Now, some of you are new. There's a lot of people who have connected to our church over the course of the pandemic. Uh, uh, some of you have been here for a while and you remember what the days were like before March 2020. Right now, like I'm looking at Steve up here with his arm up. He's chilling. You got all kinds of room to like spread out. Y'all just floated through the lobby without any issues. But some of y'all remember before March 2020, this place was crazy on Sundays. In fact, let me show it to you real quick. Uh, I'm going to show you this graph. This is a graph you probably can't even really see, but I just want you to pay attention to the colors. This is us tracking our Sunday attendance from the very beginning of our time together when we first launched uh, this location. And so let me get closer so I can see the colors here. So the blue is 2015. That starts about halfway down. So the, it's months. It starts in January and goes all the way to December. So we launched mid-year of 2015. So that's blue. That's what our attendance looked like. Green is our attendance in 2016. You see that going up a little bit. Uh, orange is our attendance in 2017. And you can see those peaks, especially when you get over into like August. You can see how our attendance was growing like crazy. The light blue is 2018. You can see, especially the second half of the year, you can see that peak grow up. And then 2019, and this is an old graph, so uh, I didn't get the latest one. I stopped in about March. But you see in 2019 how our attendance was crazy. Uh, and it was the same thing going into 2020. 
we, ever since we've opened this building, it's just been more and more and more and more people showing up. We were literally constantly buying more chairs. People were grabbing chairs all over the building. It was a little bit chaotic. We added the service at, at 1 p.m. And then March 2020, the pandemic hits and everything shuts down. Everything shuts down. We're not here. I go from preaching. If I'm in this room, the hundreds of people. If I'm preaching from Tyson's, the thousands of people. We go from preaching in that environment to nobody being in the auditorium and preaching to a camera. I don't even know if my jokes are funny anymore because I can't hear nobody laughing. I don't know what, how people are responding, if they're paying attention or what. Uh, just everything shut down. And I'll be honest, it caused us, caused me as a pastor, caused us as pastors and leaders in the church to really think about when we begin to reopen and kind of rebuild ministry, what does that look like? Because it kind of forces you to think about what is church? What does it mean to shepherd and pastor a church? Should we just settle for lots of people showing up or or should we be more invested in building those people up? And I think for many of you who are not pastors and leaders in the church, you're confronted with the same kinds of questions. What is the church and what should my investment and involvement be in the church? And I think one of the things that the pandemic showed, we knew this kind of, but it kind of proved that for a lot of people, a lot of people in our church family, a lot of people were just spectators when it came to the life of the church. A lot of folks were just spectators who would come for like an hour and a half, you know, on average, the average uh, American Christian uh, attends church 1.7 times a month. I don't know how you do that math, but uh, it's about twice a month. And even then, just kind of engage just to kind of receive, listen to the sermon, hear some good music and kind of go on about your week. Most Christians in America and a lot of Christians in our church we're just spectators. And I don't bring that up in any way to condemn you. I, I bring it up because I think God is inviting you into something more as we are now beginning to reopen. And I want to invite you and challenge you to reevaluate what your connection to the no local church looks like. To not, to don't settle for just being a spectator, but to use this as an opportunity to have a reset in your connection with the church, to move from being a spectator into what God desires for you and your life. And God designed the church for the different parts of the church to be active. And God designed your own spiritual uh, growth and your own joy to be connected to you being active in the local church. And so from Hebrews chapter 13, I really just want to ask you three questions for you to think about. And then I want to give you some, uh, some, uh, some practical uh, just encouragement for ways for you to, to, to get involved in our church. And here's the first question I want to ask. Have you been a spectator in mission? Like when it comes to the mission of God, which we'll see, when it comes to the mission that Jesus came to accomplish, have you been a spectator? This is a great opportunity in this season for you to pray about what it looks like for God to use you and make you an active participant in mission. So here's what I mean. Let me give you some context. The writer of Hebrews has just finished talking about Jewish sacrifices, and he's drawing an analogy between those sacrifices and the Christian life. So there were all kinds of, you, some of you might be familiar with the Old Testament, there's all kinds of uh, offerings and sacrifices that were instituted in the Jewish system of religion under the Mosaic law. They were Wave offerings and grain offerings. These were offerings of thanksgiving. There were all different kinds of offerings. But here in Hebrews 13, if you read the context in verses 11 and 12, the writer of the Hebrews has been talking about the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. The sin offering was a particular offering that was offered by the priest once a year. So the priest would come in and uh, sacrifice a bull in the tabernacle or in the temple in order to atone for the sins of the people. And then the body of the bull will be burned outside the camp. Now, let me just give you a little bit of Old Testament theology shifting into the New Testament. Because if you're not familiar with the Bible and don't understand how all this fits together, those Old Testament sacrifices were actually instituted by God. The sacrificial system was given to the people of Israel as a way for them to experience forgiveness of their sin. But 
it was a temporary solution. It was never meant, it could never possibly, and this is what the argument is in this section of Hebrews, this sacrificial system could never and was never designed to be a permanent solution to a sin problem. It could never actually produce eternal forgiveness of sin. That's why they had to constantly make sacrifices. That's why the Day of Atonement came around every year and the high priest had to go in every single year and make the same sacrifice on behalf of the people. The sacrificial system was actually designed to show people that they needed something outside of themselves in order to be made acceptable to God. But the sacrifices themselves were not able to make them permanently and eternally acceptable to God. Those sacrifices were pointing, those temporary sacrifices were pointing to a permanent solution, which was Jesus Christ. And so the writer of the Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is superior to, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But we see on the day of the atonement, the bull was sacrificed, uh, and then the bull would be, the dead body of the bull would be carried outside the camp and burned, discarded. It was a picture of absolute rejection, condemnation, just completely alienated outside the camp. And then look at what it says in verse 12. It says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. He was literally crucified outside the city gates of Jerusalem in a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It was like a spiritual junkyard. It was, it was a place that was cursed, a place of condemnation. It was a place where criminals were, were crucified, where they experienced uh, uh, this execution because of crimes that they had committed. And we know Jesus had not committed a crime or any sin, but he was crucified. And why was he crucified? Why did Jesus suffer outside the gate? It says it right there in verse 12, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The phrase sanctified means to make the people acceptable to God. They, Jews were not able to be permanently made acceptable to God through the sacrificial system. That was pointing to the promises that had come from prophet after prophet after prophet that a Messiah would come. And this Messiah, according to Isaiah 53, would be sacrificed as the full and final sacrifice necessary to atone for Sins And Jesus came and suffered. He was crucified outside the city gates of Jerusalem, outside the camp, in order to make people acceptable to God through his own blood. And as we put our trust in Jesus, we are made acceptable to God. Let me pause and just say if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you've had questions, you don't become acceptable to God by trying to balance out your bad works with more good works. That's not how the justice of God works. You cannot earn your way out of the judgment that you deserve because of your sin. You, don't, you can't become acceptable to God by going to church or by giving in an offering or by confessing your sin to a priest. You cannot do anything in and of yourself to make yourself acceptable to God. You need something outside of yourself to be made acceptable. And you need not just something, you need someone. His name is Jesus. And he came and suffered outside the camp. He experienced rejection and condemnation, alienated in order for you and I to be accepted, to be made whole and to be clean and forgiven. For us to be reconciled to God and made acceptable to him through the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. And I want to invite you today that if you haven't turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that. That's exactly what the Jews had to do here. And even in the first uh, century, they had, to, they had to turn away from the Jewish kind of religious system, the sacrificial system, the mosaic legal system. They had to turn away from relying on that in order to be made acceptable to God. They had to realize they couldn't be made acceptable to God through their works. And this was a call for them to trust in Jesus who suffered on their behalf. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have experienced that forgiveness. We are now in a relationship with God 
through our trust in the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection, this text is a call for us to now participate in the mission of Jesus because Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. And he invites us as his people and as a church family to participate in that mission. And that's why the writer says in verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Bear the reproach he endured. Bear the embarrassment. Bear the rejection. Suffer like he did. To be a Christian, which automatically puts you in in conflict with the culture around you, but then also to go to that culture in order to proclaim the gospel. This is being set apart from the world in order to reach the world. That's what we see in Jesus. He suffered outside the camp in order to reach the camp. This isn't fundamentalism. It's not Jesus just separating himself just to be separate. Jesus suffered outside the camp. He was rejected and alienated so that by his blood he might save the same people that alienated and rejected him. And we follow that pattern in mission as followers of Jesus. We are separate from the world in our character, in our godliness, in our holiness, and living according to God's word. And we are separated not in order to be self-righteous and to be better than other people. We are separated from the world in order to be used by God to reach the world. It is in being distinct and being different according to God's word. Believing the doctrines and the revelation of God according to Scripture, it is being in being set apart that by God's Spirit we're able then to re-engage with the gospel in order to see people reached. And when you look at this imagery of being outside the camp throughout Scripture, it sheds some light on what it means for us to live on mission with Jesus. I love how David summarizes this section, um, uh, Pastor David summarizes this, this section, not King David. Uh, but, but just listen for just a second because outside the camp, some of you are not familiar with the Bible, but that's language that comes right out of the Old Testament. So I've explained that a, a bit when, when, when it comes to the Day of Atonement. But I want you to hear some of these verses because I want you, when it says that Jesus suffered outside the camp, I want you to be able to picture and visualize and think about what it was like outside the camp. And what that means for us. So listen to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. This is talking about the Day of Atonement. Look at verse 27. It says this. It says, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung, which means exactly what you think it means, shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them, listen, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, then he may come into the camp. I want you to get the imagery here. Outside the camp was this place where these carcasses had been burned. Like the stench that was outside the camp. Like this was a dirty place. It was a defiled place. It was a foul place. And this is where Jesus suffered. This is where Jesus spends time in his ministry in order to accomplish the purpose for which God the Father sent him. And what this means for us is that like Jesus, we are called to reach people who are in dirty places. When it says that we go to Jesus, we suffer like Jesus outside the camp. It means we do it on behalf of people who are in dirty places. Like, y'all, we don't exist just for ourselves to kind of stay safe in our kind of comfortable bubble and and, and country club Christian community as a church family. We exist. We exist in union with Jesus for the sake of those who are considered dirty because of sin like we all were. Like we all were. 
Every single one of us, unclean, unacceptable to God because of our sin. And instead of us being repulsed by and removing ourselves from those people, we are set apart, yes, but in order to re-engage and to tell people who have been made to feel dirty or have unclean consciousness because of their sin, we're able to go to them and say, listen, you don't have to clean yourself up first in order to be made acceptable to God. You can't clean yourself up in a way that makes you acceptable to God. God sent Jesus to you. You in the filth of your sin because he is the one to make you clean. This is what we do. Like our, uh, We as a church have to be moving toward people in dirty places and relationships and situations and sin patterns to say to them, you cannot and don't have to clean yourself up first. God sent Jesus while we were still sinners and he gave his life for us. He went to the dirty place and he took on our sins so that through him we might be made clean and acceptable in the sight of God. And we're called to reach people in despised places. Leviticus 13, it says, verse 45, it says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Unclean here means not acceptable to be in God's presence. And so a person who had leprosy, and you see this in the New Testament, a person who had leprosy was completely cut off from the community. They were despised by the community because of their disease. They were unclean to the point where, just imagine this for a second. Imagine you tested positive for COVID-19. Now, first of all, you're supposed to be in quarantine. But imagine if you weren't. Imagine if you show up to work and, 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 and people find out that you test. They'd be like, why are you here? Imagine that you have to, if you don't quarantine, you have to walk around saying, unclean, unclean. This is what happened in the old covenant. This is what happened in the first century where Jesus this is why it was so profound when Jesus didn't just heal a leper from a distance, but moved in close and challenged a leper. They were despised and completely cut off, alienated. And listen, Jesus experienced that. He was despised. He was cut off and alienated so that we could be accepted. And we as his people get the great privilege of going to people who have been despised in the culture, have been despised in their families, have been despised even by churches. And we get to say Jesus was despised so that you could be received and accepted. Jesus invites us, church family, to participate in his mission, to go to people who need to hear the gospel, who need to see and experience the love of God, who may feel dirty and unfit to be in church or unfit to be in a relationship with God. And like us, they are. You are if you're not in Christ. I was apart from Christ. We get to go to people who feel despised, they feel condemned and they feel judged. They feel cut off. And we get to go to them with the grace of God. This is the great privilege, but it costs something. And this is why this imagery is so potent in this section, because it says that we have to, if we want to participate in this mission, we have to be willing to bear the reproach that Jesus endured. Like being a part of the mission of Jesus comes at a cost. Now, there are people all over the world who are suffering for the sake of the mission of God in some pretty incredible ways, just unbelievable ways. Their, their physical safety is threatened. They're threatened with prison. Their businesses are taken from them. They're suffering in ways that we don't necessarily have to suffer here in the United States. But in order to represent Jesus and to participate in, in mission with Jesus, it will require to us to experience a measure of suffering. All of us whether it's to our reputation or to a relationship or, what, or just an awkward moment for us to share the gospel with somebody, to talk about Jesus for us in, our, in where we work in, in school, for our students who are here, for us to actually represent Jesus and live on mission and to work so that people might get to know Jesus, it requires us to be willing to embrace a measure of suffering. And I use that word embrace intentionally. Because we will never be able to fully participate in mission if we're not willing to 
embrace a measure of suffering in order to participate in that mission. We know that's true when it comes to moving to some reach, uh, unreached people group. We know there's a measure of sacrifice involved in that in order to leave our family here, in order to sell what we have and move among the poor or be in among some group of people who are hostile toward Christianity and in a dangerous area where we could lose our lives. We know that there's a cost to do that. But I'm also talking about the cost of just living on mission where we are. We feel the awkwardness. We feel the alienation. We might experience the rejection. And we have to make a decision. Do we care more about our reputation or their salvation? Are we willing to risk suffering? Are we willing to embrace some measure of difficulty because the people that God brings us into contact with are worth it? Worth it in God's eyes and worth it in our own. And I believe God has given some of you ideas, ways to reach people who are in these different places. There are people that need to hear the gospel who are in prison right now. There are people who are laying in hospitals right now who need to hear the gospel and their time is short and their urgency is real. There are people who are going through life thinking everything is okay, completely blinded to the reality of God's judgment. And we get the great opportunity to be on mission individually and collectively. And the way that we can be freed up to embrace whatever it costs in order to participate in that is what it says in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We know that there is life beyond this life. And so any temporary suffering that we experience in this life, awkwardness, rejection, tension in relationships, any temporary suffering that we experience in this life in an attempt for others to experience eternal life with God will be worth it. Let me ask you, have you been a spectator in mission? I want to invite you in the individual ways that the Lord leads you or corporately in the different ways that our church is active on mission together here and around the world. I want you to seriously think about and pray about, have you been a spectator and what does it look like for you to now participate in the mission of God? Here's the second question. Have you been a spectator in worship? Have you been a spectator in worship? Now, for many of us, by default, we have been because we've kind of been just watching online. Now, some of us, we still just try to sing in the apartment. You know, it feels a little awkward when it's just like three of y'all, you and your roommates or you and your spouse or whatever. And like, I know if I'm singing, my kids literally will be like, Daddy, can you stop? Can you? I really do. I just rather hear mommy on, on the screen. You know what I mean? So the medium itself kind of lends itself to, to, to kind of being a spectator. But now as we're beginning to reopen, we have an opportunity to reevaluate our participation even in corporate worship. And so think about what he says in verse 15. He says, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. A sacrifice of praise to God. Now, this isn't a sacrifice. We've already seen this. This is not a sacrifice here to pay God for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. Our debt is paid through faith in him. This is not a sacrifice to pay God for our sins. This is a sacrifice to praise God for our salvation. It's a sacrifice of praise. And what is this sacrifice of praise? Well, he says it right here in verse 15. He says, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What does that sacrifice of praise look like? It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And you think about that imagery of fruit is very simple. There's something beneath the surface that produces something above the surface. There's something internal that produces something external. When you have truly encountered the grace of God and you're in a relationship with Jesus and you've been born again and you've experienced his glory, you know who God is. You know his holiness and his justice and his mercy and his goodness and his grace. You know the depths of his love for your sin. You've seen his glory and you've experienced his goodness and his grace and it has transformed your life. When that happens in your heart, then there's going to be evidence out of your mouth. 
It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And it's a lifestyle of praise to God. It's we're praising God in the car. It's when people point out good things in our life or good things about us. We use that as an opportunity because we want to, to direct praise to God. We live a life of praise. But it's also what we do when we gather together in corporate worship. This is why we sing. We give God praise. But there's lots of outward expressions of praise throughout the Bible. So let me just give you like a quick little tour of just outward expressions of praise throughout the Bible. Psalm 95 verse 6, it says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Kneeling is a way of humbly giving praise to God. Psalm 47, 1, clap your hands, all peoples. Psalm 149 verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. And I know some of us, if you grew up in a more conservative church background, dancing may not have ever been a part of anything that you've seen in corporate worship. But I guarantee you, if you go to some other parts of the world or just even other churches, then, then dancing is just an expression of praise. It's an expression of praise to God. It is expressing your joy in the Lord, like through your hands and through your feet and through your body. Look at Psalm 63, verses 3 and 4. It says, Behold, uh, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And watch this. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Like it's an expression of praise to lift up your hands in full surrender and acknowledging that the truths that we're talking about, God, I believe it. God, I, I agree. God, I am, I am so thankful that I now know and understand what you've revealed about yourself. So there's all kinds of ways throughout Scripture to give our expression of our praise to God. But the clearest way for us to give praise to God is what Hebrews calls the fruit of our lips. And here's why. Because all those other things I just mentioned, which are a part of corporate worship, we see them in Scripture. But all those things are things we do in other contexts. And they don't necessarily point to God. We clap at concerts. Right? There's cultures that bow out of respect for elders. We do all these other things in different contexts, so just doing those things is not an explicit reference to God and how praiseworthy he is. But when we connect those outward expressions of praise to the explicit praise of our lips, then God is the one who gets the glory. And this is why when we gather, we sing and we care about the doctrine that we sing because we want to... Praise God, worship God in spirit and in truth. From our hearts of sincerity and according to what he has revealed about himself. So there's all these different ways to express our praise to God. And the clearest way is the fruit of our lips, giving verbal, explicit expression to who God is and what God has done. And here's why I share all that. Here's why I share all that. Praise starts in the heart, but it never stops there. Listen to me. Praise starts in the heart, but it never stops there. What I mean by that is this imagery of the fruit of lips. It's, it's something that we feel and experience in our hearts. We know in our heads the doctrines about God. We sense in our hearts gratitude toward that God. But praise is when what is true in our minds and what we feel and have experienced in our hearts actually is expressed outwardly. That's what praise is according to scripture. And the reason why I share that so much is because some of us will say things like, well, I'm not a very expressive person. I'm not a very expressive person. And I know some of y'all, it's true. It's very true. And so I get that. We all have different personalities, cultural backgrounds, all of that. Some of us would say I'm not an expressive person. And, and a lot of us, when it comes to praise in church, a lot of us men, this is partly why we feel like church is for women, because we come in and we're like, I don't want to sing these romantic songs to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't, I'm not, I, this is not, I don't, this is not my thing. I'm just not that much, I'm not an emotionally expressive person. That might be true. So our personalities are different. But is it always true? Because is it true, like, when our favorite team wins the game? All of a sudden, we become an emotionally expressive person. I mean, we could give some other examples 
Like that's in us, but there's something about when we come into the presence of God, when we come into the church where we, and this is not just true of men, it's true of a lot of us, we say, well, I, that's just not my personality. I'm not an expressive person. And we're going to praise God in different ways according to how he invites us to praise him in scripture, the different things that, we, that we've seen here. However, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge, sometimes we're not outwardly expressing our praise to God, not because, not because we're not an emotionally expressive person, but because there's something going on deeper where we won't even allow ourselves to express praise to God in those ways. We're, we don't like the way our voice sounds. Eh, people around you probably don't like the way it sounds either. But God does. God does. Some of us say, well, we have to be careful about emotionalism. And we do. Even in Isaiah, it talks about how people worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So some people will say, we, we got to be careful about emotionalism because there's a lot of people that just are carried off with emotion, but it's not rooted in sound doctrine or it's not rooted in true devotion to Jesus. Yes, that is a great caution. But what about where there is devotion to Jesus and there is sound doctrine? When we study scripture, sound doctrine, what God has revealed about himself, when that revelation lands on our hearts and our hearts are gripped by the glory and the grace of God, it produces emotion, it produces joy, it produces celebration, it produces gratitude for who God is and what God has done. And so praise starts in the heart, but it never stops there. It doesn't stop there. John Wesley wrote uh, what he called uh, Rules for Congregational Singing. He wrote this in 1770. John Wesley wrote a bunch of hymns that we sing. And one of there was like six rules. One of the rules that he wrote, uh, is, uh, the, the rule was sing lustily. Now, I know that sounds weird to us now. Back then, lustily just meant passionately. And here's how he explained it. He said, beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift, are we, that's like nervous laughter. So I'm like, oh, that's me. But lift up your voice with strength. You know what that means? That's a very fancy way of saying sing loud. Be no more afraid of your voice now or more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. Man, come on, y'all. Like some of us, we've been to some U2 concerts or Beatles, depending on what generation you were in, or, or Justin Bieber, whatever. I don't know. And we're singing these songs. and It's like we're carried away in the moment. We're hearing people's voices, and we're just celebrating and enjoying the music and the art in the moment. And then we come to church, and we're like, I'm not singing. This is something that's commanded in Scripture, to sing praise to God. And here's one of the things that I see that often happens in a diverse church environment. We have people with different kinds of personalities, different cultural backgrounds. And for people who have been Christians for a while or grew up in a Christian background, we have people who have come from different church environments. So some people come from a little bit more like reserved environments and some people come from more expressive environments. And one of the things that I've seen is when we come into these environments, we begin to judge one another in terms of how we offer praise to God. Now, what I'm not advocating for is for us to, to be stretching ourselves and just doing a whole bunch of stuff that's not biblical. There are whole revival movements that talk about stuff like running around and just laughing in the spirit. We don't see that in Scripture. But we do see certain things in Scripture, clapping our hands, giving God a shout of praise, saying hallelujah, singing with loud voices, lifting our hands, kneeling in the presence of God. We do see some things in Scripture. And so we're invited to do, sometimes we're commanded, sometimes we're just invited to do those things in our own way, at our own pace, according to our own personalities. And, and sometimes what I see is that, and I've seen it in our church, there are some of you that come from more expressive church environments and you come into an environment like ours and you look around and you feel awkward giving God praise in the way that you see in scripture and that you're comfortable giving him praise. You feel a little awkward saying amen or hallelujah. You feel a little awkward giving him a shout of praise. You feel a little awkward clapping. You got to wait for somebody else to start the clap because you don't want to be the first awkward one. You know, you don't know if anybody else, you don't know if your clap is going to turn into applause or you're just going to be by yourself. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so we kind of, we kind of shrink back. 
because we kind of feel ashamed when we look around for permission to praise God the way Scripture invites us to praise God. And I just want to say to all of us, we don't have to do that. If you're more expressive in your praise, give God some praise. Give him sing with your whole heart. Lift up your hands and praise God. And if that's new to you and you're not quite comfortable with that, then here's what I want to say to you. And this may sound a little weird, but it's true. Praising God is an acquired taste. It really is. It's just like foods when you were younger that you didn't really like and it's like, ah, I don't know, it left the aftertaste. And, but over time, as you grow and you try it, it's like all of a sudden, like your appetite and your palate changes. Praising God really works the same way. And there's a lot of men that I talk to that never stretch themselves to get beyond the hump of outwardly expressing praise to God. Because they never want to push through the initial awkwardness of, and it, I mean, if you really think about it, you know, it's a little weird being in church, like singing to somebody invisible and lifting your hands up. Like if you're not a Christian, if you're outside, it, it, it does feel a little weird. But as you are born again and you come into faith in Jesus and you see what God says about himself and about praising him in scripture, I want to invite you to stretch yourself, sing a little louder, think about the lyrics and let them really move your heart. Maybe even stretch yourself from time to time to say, you know what? I'm looking, it looks like these people are really enjoying it. All right. I may not go like all the way up, you know what I mean? But I'm going to give you this, God. I'm going to give you halfway, Lord. I'll just, I'll start here. You know what I mean? Like stretch yourself a little bit to, to, to give God our expressions of praise because he deserves it. It is the fruit of lips. And as we see throughout scripture, other ways to acknowledge who God is. And it encourages brothers and sisters in Christ who might be struggling in their faith on a Sunday. And they see you and they're reminded, no, God is still worthy of praise. Because I know what Steve and Jen have been through. And they're on the front row giving it. And if they are giving God praise with what they've been through, then, oh, that's a good reminder to me that no matter what I feel, what I'm going through, God, you are still worthy of praise. We give God the fruit of our lips in praise to him with our words, with our singing, accompanied by these other outward expressions of praise. And so let me ask you, have you been a spectator in worship? A spectator in worship where you just kind of sit back and other people are singing and other people are giving him praise and, and you're not checked out. You're not, but, you, but, but, but if you're honest in your own heart, just between you and the Lord, nobody dictating how you do it, but in your heart you might think, ah, yeah, I have been a little bit of a spectator but, ah, because I don't like this kind of music or I don't like the kind of songs or I, I I think God is inviting you as we reset and we reopen and we begin to rebuild ministry for you to reevaluate your participation in corporate worship. Here's the last question for you, and we'll, we'll land on, on this. So have you been a spectator in mission? Have you been a spectator in worship? Have you been a spectator in ministry? In ministry. Look at what it says in verse 16. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's talking about ministry. It's talking about God using you to be a blessing to others. That might be financially giving to needs in your community or just organically with people that you know. You're standing in the, at the grocery store and there's somebody in front of you, you know what I mean, who's on wick and they don't have enough. And you've seen, the, you've been the person who has to put stuff back when they calculate. I've been there before. And you say, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And you say, hey, I don't want to embarrass you or anything like that, but I love to cover that for you. I know what that's like. I love to cover that for you. It can happen in just informal ways. It can happen in formal ways. It can happen. This can be lived out in the context of our local church. Not just financially giving to and through our local church, but in using your time and your talent, the spiritual gifts that God has given you to do good, to share what you have, to help build up the body of Christ, your own local church family. 
God wants you to contribute, to participate in ministry, and you may feel disqualified. Welcome to the club. I felt disqualified literally this morning preaching. I'm like, God, what in the world? Like, why? Why me? All of us feel that, but God has put something inside of you. And especially if you're a follower of Jesus, he's given you a spiritual gift to use to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. And so here's what we've done as we prepare to respond to God's word with a song of praise. Here's what we've done. Everybody got this when you walked in. And if you didn't, we got some. You can go to Welcome Center and get some on your way out. And there's lots of ways God will call you to live out ministry outside of the church. These are just some ways that we've tried to kind of give you opportunities within the church to do ministry, to share what you have, to do what is good, to help build up other brothers and sisters in Christ, or to help reach people and serve people who are even outside the church. So you can take your phone and the camera on your phone and just hover it over the QR code, and it'll pull up a very simple form, or you can go to this URL. And let me just give you a preview of of what that's going to lead you to. It's just a form for you to say, I don't want to be a spectator in ministry. I want to get involved. And it's not even going to ask you how you want to get involved on that form. We're just going to get your name, your email address, your phone number. And we just want to know who you are. And here's why. Because we're going to send you a link. It's going to be an invitation to what we call a serve kind of orientation. Where we're going to cast vision about the different ministries in our church. And we want to invite you, equip you, train you to be able to do ministry in the context of our church and out in the community. And you can sign up for, uh, for, for that. And if you're not able to make one of those orientations, we'll follow up with you. We'll send you different ways you can plug in to serve. And we will help you. We will guide you and coach you in getting involved in ministry. But let me just give you a preview of some of the things that we want to invite you to be a part of. Our welcome teams. Like as we're reopening and rebuilding and we're getting back to normal and more people, you saw those graphs, if more people are showing up, then in order for us to be able to accommodate all of the children that we have, we, we would be at 400 kids and students every single Sunday. That's a lot. And so we, 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 in order for us to accommodate children and fully reopen our next-gen ministries, we need people to serve in that way. We need people to do these different things. So think about welcome teams for a second. The reason why welcome teams are so important is because we want every single person that walks through these doors to feel like we've been waiting for them to show up. We want them to feel like we're excited that they actually showed up. So from the parking lot to the ushers seating people, that's why those smiles behind these masks are so, like, important. We, we want people to, you don't know what people have been going through. You don't know the shame that people are feeling. You don't know what, how they've been hurt by churches or what they've done the weekend before. You don't know. I talked to so many newcomers in our ch- who visit our church who sit in the parking lot for several weeks. They come to church, they sit in the parking lot, and then say, never mind, and then they leave because they feel shame. They don't feel worthy to even step inside a church. So what happens then when a greeter is at the door who knows nothing about their story or background and smiles and says, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. Oh, you don't know where to go? I'd love to show you where to go. Hey, walk with me. We need people to serve in our welcome teams. We need people to serve in hospitality on Sunday so that our volunteers who serve all day, they got some water, they have some refreshments and snacks to kind of keep them nourished throughout the day. We we have a a volunteer position, a kitchen manager position. We have a commercial-grade kitchen. And to be honest with you, there's so much more God could do through it, not just in our church but in the community. And I promise you there's nothing I can do with it. (laughs) But there's some of you who have a gift of hospitality or organizational, you're organizational in your management skills and, or, or you're great with cooking in, in our hospitality ministry or in the kitchen. You can help with some stuff like that. We need people in our next-gen ministries and we need people with administrative gifts who are not just like me, who are good with theology and good with vision and good for caring people. But y'all, come on, y'all walk around. I know some of y'all, sometimes y'all walk around, you're like, this place could be more organized. Listen, the reason why you see that is because God's calling you. <laughs> we need your gifts in the body. Some of you are gifted with organization and management and strategy and execution. And we need those gifts activated in the body. It might be just during the week to come in just to be an administrative volunteer. Or it might be to lead administratively, strategically, and organizationally. 
We need people to serve as group leaders so people are cared for. People can help them grow in their faith and equip them to make disciples. We need folks in digital and creative arts because social media is a mission field. We need folks to have ideas for social media and photography and art. And you'll hear from our day next week who in two weeks, it'll be his last Sunday, Pastor our day who you saw uh, in the baptism video. He'll be transitioning to be the full-time founding and lead pastor of Thirst Church. After over two years now of being connected to our church family, we need people to go out and help multiply churches, to say, I'm willing to make a commitment for a year or so to go help get another church established because it's not just all about McLean Bible Church. We want to make sure that everybody in this region has access to a compelling gospel witness in the context of a local church. So there are all kinds of ways for you to get involved in ministry just in and through our local church. That's not even to mention all the ways God is inviting you to be a blessing to other people outside of the church. And so I want to encourage you, if you feel like you've kind of been a spectator in ministry, I want to encourage you to go sign up on this form. We'll send you some information. We'll invite you to come and spend some time learning about how to actually get active and involved and contribute to being a blessing to other people. And we would love to be able to coach you in that way. Have you been a spectator? If you have, this time where the whole world now is beginning to kind of reopen and Christians are beginning to regather in churches, it's a great time for a reset. It's a great time for you to reevaluate your participation in your local church, whether that's here or wherever it is. In mission, in worship, in ministry, God designed for your joy to be full and made complete as you pour yourselves out for others and ultimately for his glory. And we invite you to do it. And listen, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus did for you. It's precisely what he did for you. Like God himself came in human flesh, poured himself out, gave up his life so that you don't have to face God's judgment, but you could have eternal life with God. And we invite you today to put your trust in Jesus, maybe for the first time. And he will forgive you and completely change and transform your life. We want to respond to God with a song that's a simple prayer, a prayer of just surrender to him. And so let me pray as the band comes and prepares to lead us in this response. Father, we thank you so much for the work that you've done, not just in our church, but in our lives and in our hearts. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, that you saw us in our sin. And instead of drawing away from us, you drew near to us in the person and the work of Jesus. And God, I pray for any person here who has not yet truly and fully surrendered themselves to you and put their trust, all of their weight on the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf. God, I pray that you would lead them even now to put their trust in you and make that profession of faith in you. And God, that you would save them. And God, I pray for all of those who are followers of Jesus, all of us. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord God. Help us, motivate us to not be spectators when it comes to your local church. But God, I pray, Father, that you would Use us in the context of the local church and from the local church to represent you. And even now, God, as we take this moment to respond to you, God, that we wouldn't be spectators in worship, God, but that we would give you the praise that you are worthy of. We would acknowledge your name, who you are, that we would fully surrender ourselves to you and give our lives and now our voices to you because you've given yourself to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.